0: Thanks, Jessica. Well, good morning. If um, you were paying attention during our worship time this morning and singing, um, this message has basically been preached already. Um, I just want to thank Noah and and Jessica. Um, What few times I come up here, in fact, Noah called me Monday. contacted me Monday morning about what I was preaching, and I'm going, wow, this is a little too early. But anyway, um, um, God had already given me a scripture, and I I think I knew where I was headed. But, um, you know, he he needed to know that, and in the songs that he was led to pick out, it's it's just amazing how God lays out um, every week um, worship and, and the message given. They they uh, coincide. They you know, side by side. But if you looked at your bulletins this morning, uh, we know we're coming from my favorite book, Romans, and we're my favorite chapter, Romans eight, and we're going to be talking about Romans eight twenty eight. I'll start off with a question this morning. I'll ask you if you've ever made this statement: "God, what in the world are you doing?" And I know it, 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 it's, it's a laughing question. But you know, countless meaningless things, or what we at least think are meaningless things, uh, occur in our lives routinely. And, and, and to be honest this morning, and I'm sure you are too, our answer to that question is yes. We have questioned God about the events in our lives, when they occur, how painful they are, um, when they happen. But I think you all know this. God knows what he's doing. You know, it's okay. I tell myself it is okay to ask this question with a seeking heart. It's not okay to ask this question with a defiant heart. So we come this morning to this, uh, probably one of the most famous um, love verses in all the Bible, Romans 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Probably of all the promises in the Bible, I'm sure this verse has helped people to trust God at times of trials, um, times of tragedies, which here again seemed um, pointless, painful, and even evil. We have hope. This verse gives us hope. We hold fast to the all things in this verse, and we believe the Word of God, and and when we do that, you know, our pain, our suffering, um, this terrible belief, seemingly pointless thing um, that's coming in our lives, we can hang on to the all things here. It will turn out for our good. And please notice here that, that the Word says, God causes. It's Him that makes all things work together for good. um... It certainly doesn't mean they work out that way on their own. By some power or, or fate or even like we, sometimes I even catch myself saying luck. Um, there is no such thing as luck. You know, God is the one working. You know, God's causing. It's no human support is, is needed on our behalf. Um, there's absolute assurance that the plans of our own individual lives um, have been fixed in God. You know, I read this um, and I got this from R.C. Sproul, but he, he asked this question one time before his congregation. He said, what if Jesus walked in the door and spoke directly to us and saying, I have good news for you. I promise that nothing bad will ever happen to you again. Well, in a real sense, that's what Romans eight twenty eight is telling us. But here again, in R.C. Sproul's manner, he says, it's done in a sideways manner. And, you know, this verse starts with the words, these words, and we know. That's a good question for us, isn't it? Do we know? You know, it's a fact, and we will discuss who this we are in a moment. If you would think for a moment as, as the chapter, Romans 8, this whole chapter, I think for a moment as Romans 8:1 being the top slice of bread, which says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 8:39 being the bottom slice, that informs us that there is now nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But in between these um, slices of bread, there are some things that are kind of hard to swallow. You know the context before and after verse 28 um, talk of pain, we talk of suffering, and I think that's why our Lord put um, verse 28 in this chapter. You know we need we need encouragement, we need hope because the Christian life can be, will be, and is hard at times. Take just a look for a moment as we as we glance at some of these verses. Verse 17, um, it says we will be glorified with Christ if we suffer with him. Verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 20, creation, that the creation, and that includes us, uh, is subjected to futility. Verse 21 tells us that creation is in bondage to decay. Verse 23 informs us that even spirit-filled Christians groan with the fallen creation, waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our dying, sick, and weak bodies. Verse 24 reveals that we have been saved in hope, but then it goes and says you can't see hope. If you can see hope, it's not hope. So our salvation, our full salvation is in the future. Skip over to verse 35, it talks of tribulation, distress, persecutions, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. So in the middle of all of this, to give us hope and strength, sits verse 28. And we really want to trust and believe verse 28 is true. Sometimes it's hard. You know, we want to believe this is true so that we know all things, including all the bad things. This suffering, this bondage, what we've just been reading, bondage to decay, groaning, trials, tribulations. All these things work together for God, our good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So let's kind of examine this, this verse a little bit this morning uh, for us. Let's break it down. Um, first off, who is the promise for? Who is the promise for? The truth that God is working for people's good is not a universal one. There are some restrictions. It's easy to overlook, but there are two things that need to um, be true if this promise is to apply to us. One is that you love God, and the other is that you are called according to his purpose. First, we have... Those who love God. You know, if you don't love God, you can't bank on this promise. You know, in the Bible, those who love God, who love him, ordinarily means people who have made a commitment to live for God. You know, a commitment means to serve God in recognition and in appreciation of who he is. Love for God is a matter of, of the heart's admiration and appreciation for what God has done. For us before it produces anything else. That's important. Before it produces anything else. Yes, we love God because of His gifts. Um, forgiveness, sanctification, resurrection, um, just all these, on oh, salvation it goes on and on and on. But love of God is desiring Him, treasuring Him, and cherishing Him above all these things. Love all these gifts. It's it's a matter of love for God. It's a matter of a reflex of our heart that all that God is for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, love for God is not a deliberate choice or a deed on our part. We love God because why? He first loved us. You know, if we love God for all He is in Himself, we, we make a commitment we endure the difficulties of life. You know, one way to tell if we're using God only for what He gives you is we want to bail out when when sufferings show up. You know, um, we find ourselves in the "What have you done for me lately?" mode. We we put God to the test, just like the Israelites did in the Exodus. It's, 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 a, it's a, one of the simple impulses of our heart. It's like we put God on probation, conditional on how He performs. And how He performs is on our standard. You know, the word love here uh, is very important. Um, it was put here for a special reason rather than the word Believe. Here in James, demons believe there is a God, right? That's why the word love here is so very important. Again, one of the best ways we can decide at once if we love God is our reaction to adversity. It's a measuring rod. You know, when trials and tribulations rise, what do we do? Do we give up? Do we feel like God you've let me down? You know, love for God is the motivating force for living the Christian life. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This does not mean that keeping commandments is love. Basically, it's our love for God that prompts us to keep his commandments. So the ultimate motivator for Christian service, ministry, obedience... Is our personal affection for God. Second thing that's mentioned here in this verse that needs to be true of us is that we're called according to his purpose. You know, God calls a person to Christ by bringing them into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he takes a dead heart and makes it alive so they hear the gospel as irresistible. This is called the effectual call of God, as the theologians would call it. God's call gives life. You know, God has brought us into a relation with Him. We're believers here this morning. God has brought us into a relation with Him. You know, this effectual call means that when God, what God calls forth occurs, what He purposes is going to happen. What He calls is affected by that call. You know, creation gives us a a great example of the calling of God. You know, when God called the world into being, it was not an invitation. There was no pleading from God. God said, let there be light. And there was light. You know, there was no pleading or begging from God in this part. You know, and what God purposes in whatever He calls, He gives that purpose. And that purpose can never be frustrated or stopped or thwarted because God, who is God, God is sovereign. There are no dropouts in God's call. What God calls, He keeps. So if we are a believer here today, it is not because God, we may excuse me, it's not because we made God's call effectual in our lives. It's because God did. We are called according to His purpose. And we say, well what is a purpose? And you know a purpose is a, a, a desired end, a planned consequence. You know our goals, our plans, our purposes, are fallible at best. God's plans are infallible. I think we need to take a look for a moment um, at verses 29 and 30 also, right behind 28. The word for at the beginning of 29 of verse 29 shows a close connection of what God's purpose actually is. You know, what God is working out in all the circumstances of our lives. You know, verse 28, standing by itself on its own, is not meant to tell us that when we have troubles, they will just work out in some general abstract way. No. Verse 29 unfolds the purpose. That purpose is to be conformed to the image of His Son. God is always working in us character change. And sometimes that's hard. Verse thirty, verse thirty is a call to justification, and the ultimate thing there is glorification. Because these are the things that God's purposing in our lives to be conformed to the image of His Son, and as we sang this morning, to get us to the other side—glorification. That's his that's his love for us. That's his call in our lives. So these things these two things at least need to be true of us as the promises to be ours. You know, remember it's not true for everyone. You know, even the good things for the unbeliever will turn out for their bad because it just kind of reinforces their self sufficiency. But as I thought about that, it also is not sometimes good for the believer, is it, is it? But sometimes good things will help reinforce our self-sufficiency. We have to be careful. You know the love of God and his calling upon us is very important because our our love for him uh, can be fragile at times. My heart at times rests on shaggy ground. But this promise, this promise that we have here this morning before us rests on God's love. It rests on His calling. It rests on His purpose. His calling is not fragile, His calling is not uncertain. You know, our love, as we well know, at times can be um, based on emotional or personal feelings. But God's call, His love for us, we. We see it. It's provable. It's measurable. We feel and see the results of it. And we know it's a fact. You know, we're not the key here. God is the key. God is the key. Well, what does the promise say? What does the promise say? The next point here all things work for good. John Newton, I read a quote from John Newton. Perhaps you've heard it before. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Let me ask you another question here. Have you ever made this statement? Nothing good can come out of this. Nothing good can come out of this. No way. This verse, Romans eight twenty eight, denies that. We may feel at times our lives are off course. um, We've been ruined by some bad thing, maybe a bad choice, some uncontrollable thing is happening in our lives. But in reality, it is playing a very important role in our lives. It's teaching us, it's molding us, it's humbling us. You know, this verse is teaching us to look at life's troubles. All things is part of God's loving purpose for us. Remember, this text um, does not say that all things are good. But that God works all things for our good. There are some bad things that happen to us. We can't deny that. But all, all, all things, all really means all. Even our sin. You know, sin is always bad. It always brings with it terrible things. And we will regret its painful consequences. That it, it happens in our lives. But God, and only God, because of His sovereignty, because of His greatness, He takes our sin. He will orchestrate our sin into an ultimate good. But this never Excuses our sin. Never excuses our sin. I want to look, let us look at some biblical examples um, this morning that helps bring out this truth um, about this. Uh, first, let's look at, at Joseph. You're all familiar with Joseph and his story. Um, Joseph's brothers hate him. You know, basically because Joseph has come along and basically told him he had a dream that someday he would rule over them. Actually, that dream came true, didn't it? So they scheme, um, they get together, and they end up throwing Joseph into a pit. And then they sell him into slavery into Egypt. Brothers run back to Jacob, his father, and say, your son's been killed by a wild animal. Joseph, now in Egypt, seems to be doing fairly well. He is a house servant in the house of Potiphar. But... Potiphar's wife lies about attempted rape and Joseph ends up in jail. And so Joseph is forgotten and languishes in jail for a long time. One scholar or some scholars believe it was 17 years that he was in jail. It's a long time. Wondering what's going to happen. What have I done to deserve this? All these questions, right? You've had them. Apparently nothing is working for any lasting good for Joseph. Certainly nothing good can come out of this. You know, but God is at work in causing, even though we cannot see. And it's not obvious. wasn't obvious to Joseph, I'm sure. But Joseph eventually is taken from jail and made second to Pharaoh himself. So we say, wow, from the house to the penthouse. But in the meantime, um, the seven-year famine has hit Joseph's family back in Canaan. And so his brothers, um, who sold him into slavery, end up before Joseph. And Joseph is ready to help them. You know, the whole point, the whole point of this story is caught in these verses um, first verse or verses I will read, Genesis 45, 7 and 8. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me, but God. Genesis 50:20. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You know, guys, over every calamity of our lives are written um, to our adversaries, if you want to call them that. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, the word sent here, and I hope you heard that word, it was said twice, and it will be said again. The word sent is so very important. The brothers selling Joseph by their wicked plan was God sending for salvation for many. We see how sovereign God is. The the brothers' sin of sending Joseph there was God sending for salvation of many. That's basically the Gospel. This is the Old Test- Testament version of all things right here. These are the things that God meant to work together for good. You know, God is a purposing God. He is not a reacting God. God did just did not just sit back and watch evil events unfold with no design and no purpose and bring good out of them. No. Just as the brothers meant it for evil, they designed it, they are responsible, it was their purpose, it was also God who meant it, designed it, and purposed it for good. They meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You know, God just does not bring good out of all things. He ordains what happens to us For our good, and he infallibly brings good from it according to his purpose. You know, God sent Joseph to save his brothers, even though this sin involved the sin of his brothers. Skip to the book of Esther. In Esther, we read about this evil plan, Haman, who wanted to slaughter the Jewish people. And surely if we look at Esther, um, here we have this um, young Jewish girl um, forced into a harem of an unclean pagan king. Surely that was not where she wanted to go. Why? Why did it happen? Why did God allow it? You know, I think Esther's uncle, Mordecai, gives us the answer. Chapter 4, verse 14. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You know, the book of Job, we're familiar with Job. And, you know, James kind of breaks it down for us in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's purposing that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So God's purposing here was compassion and mercy for Job. He was just not responding. His whole plan through it all was to show you. Job, mercy, and compassion. And we go to the New Testament. We we think of uh, the Apostle Paul, and we we think of this uh, thorn in the flesh. Read about it in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse nine. You know, Paul was given this thorn in the flesh, and it's called a messenger from Satan to torment him. Why would God? You're doing God's purposes. Why why would you allow Satan to torment him? This is Jesus' answer to him. You know it. My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Heard a quote one time and I think it applies to this verse. It said, Wounded soldiers serve the best. Wounded soldiers serve the best. You know, God had a design in this message for Satan. It was for Paul's good and his glory. For God's glory. And finally, we, we look at our, our Lord Jesus Christ and His cross. You see, in Galatians 4.4, 4, at just the right time, God sent His Son. You know, the picture for what God did for us in sending His Son to the cross is called... In uh, several places, but in Acts 4:27 and 28, listen. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant—that's a capital Y, your holy servant, whom you anointed—that's another capital Y, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Verse 28: To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Bottom line, even though Jesus going to the cross involved the sins of Herod, uh, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jewish people, it was God sending. Isn't that amazing? You know they meant it for good. Here again, God meant it for for they meant it for evil. Excuse me, but God meant it for good. You see, in all of these events, God is sovereign. He overrules. You know, the simple purposes of these events, you know, all, you know just discussed, were simple actions made by people who were accountable or responsible for their sins and actions. But God is not culpable in any of this. He is not to blame. He is not guilty in any of it. God overruled it. If, pardon the pun, he, pun, he trumped it. You know, God brought about his ultimate purpose because he is sovereign in all these matters. You know, God brings the good out of evil. God's plans, his purposes, he works all things together for our good. You know, he was sovereign in these events we just talked about in the past. He is and will be sovereign for us today and tomorrow in our future. what what is, what is this final point here? What does this promise? What does this promise mean? How 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 do we apply this? You know why this message this morning? Personally, I needed it, and and I, I I think probably you need it, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But um, you know, I'm confident that um your life hasn't worked out exactly the way you thought it would, right? You know, last month probably didn't work out. Yesterday didn't work out. It's 1130 right now, and we're not sure about even what's going to work out for the rest of the day. But you know what? We are not the author of our lives. We're hearing about a God who works for our good, purposes for our good, and that's what He is after, our good. In His glory. You know, um, I, a few months ago, um, I found my own self um, questioning God. What are you, what are you doing? And that's probably the impetus for this message this morning because I was taken through Romans 8.28 myself, um, which I needed. Um, you know, my mother's death had come. You know, My mother lived a, a long, long, good life. Um, you know, but anyway, with that, and with her death and, and, and all the problems that her death brought, you know, there's still a lot of it remains unsolved. But, you know, it was her death that God used to kind of um, shake me a little bit. Um, I had um, I'd, I'd gotten to the point where I had taken over. Um, The throne of my heart, which is done in a very subtle way, by the way, Um, just a warning. But God used that to show me, um, hey, you're not in charge. You think you are, but you're not. In fact, you tried to move me out. So I, I was the one that had finally decided what what good needed to be occurring in my life, what needed to be happening in my life and, and what I had determined was happening was not good. And so therefore we I point the finger at God and he points it right back at me. You know, I was the one now thinking, God, what have you done for me lately? Not, a, not wasn't only my mother's death, but a culmination of things that there were going on. You know, our love for God has its moments of intensity um, and weakness, just like any other relationship does. And in times of testing, that has shown us. That's why Romans eight twenty eight. Became um, alive to me in a way that has never happened before. I've read that verse; I don't know how many hundreds of times, and believed it. Or thought I believed it. But you know, this message is not only about me. um, It's certainly about you, also, out here. Um, We all have pains. We all have struggles in our life. We all have tragedies in our life. You know, and as I said, and. thought about, and I kind of took a survey in my head, I said, just in this little body right here, um, each Sunday when we take prayer requests, and we do prayers, requests throughout the week, things that come up, and we were able to see those things. Uh, I made a list in my head of, of things that occur in our life, not good things. We, they're painful things, they're tragedies, um, they're griefs, they're sufferings. So, what are some of the things? Cancer. I don't think a week goes by that we don't hear about it. Even involving somebody in our family or somebody we know or in us. Incurable maladies, incurable diseases. They come out of the blue. One day you're fine and the next day you're not. We have death that occurs all the time. Death of loved ones. We've heard of botched surgeries that have happened. And there are still more surgeries to come. There are those who live with chronic pain. Some for a decade. We have an adult child. There's an adult child who does not speak or has not even been seen by his parents for years. Although they pray and pray and pray, we have the spiritually lost. Whether it be our own children, family members, friends, the difficulties of the aging process, deteriorating health, jobs lost, promotions that never came, though promised. What about my future? What am I going to do? You can fill in your own blanks here, I'm sure. This is certainly not an exhaustive list. You know, we, we we have plans and we make everyday choices and we make everyday decisions. Hopefully we do so through prayer. You know, events occur in our life that we have no control over. And what God is saying to us is even He's saying this to us, even in our your everyday life, I superintend, I rule over. You know, I heard Paul, our pastor Paul say a year or so ago, he says you can get on the wrong train ten times, but you're still gonna end up where God wanted you to be. And that's so very that's that's so true. So true. Our, like I said, our plans and our our purposing are fallible. God's are not. You know we may ask in times of trials and suffering and stuff, what good can come out of this, but it's really not what we determine in our lives is good or bad because we really here again can't determine what what I really need to happen in my life. You know, God cares for us, you know. We know that. We know that. Sometimes we question that, don't we? You know, Peter tells us to cast uh, cares on God because He cares for us, and, and sometimes we wonder about that care because at times God uh, may not always send a, a cool drink or a soft pillow, but He still cares because He knows what we need. He knows exactly what we need. You know, we would, we surely would choose the easy way out. You know, when difficulties come, we want relief, so we want relief as fast as we can get it. But we have to realize God is the control. He is the ultimate good. His plans are marvelous. You know, if if um, if you're a Christian here today, God's plan is to bring you home. Your future is not closed, but in a way our future is closed, has been closed, because everything about our future has been ordered by God. God has no surprise moments. I want to close this morning. I um, actually have time to do it with two two thoughts. Um, one, I'm going to look at Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. And I'll, I'll go ahead and read this. And then we're going to make some observations here. Mark six forty-five. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to the Sadia, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountains to pray. When it was evening, this boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. This is occurring right after the feeding of the 5,000. You know, and I, I um, got some help from 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 this, from Paul Tripp, um, to help us understand this a little bit. But here we have Jesus sending, here we have that word again, sending. Um, his disciples died on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He, you know, and um, he stays behind. You know, and as he as he sees them, they are encountering big waves and a strong wind. And Jesus is standing there watching. What does it tell us? Jesus is always watching, right? He's always watching. You know, the, the disciples are in a situation that is far beyond their strength or ability. They have no way of coping with this. And we may ask ourselves, why would Jesus put them in such a difficult spot? He knew it was going to happen. In fact, we can even go as far to say he ordered it. You know, he, he knew what was going to happen. He's the Lord. He can stop it. He can stop the struggle. He can stop the wind. He can stop the storm. And it's clear that his disciples are not in this situation for being disobedient. They were doing exactly what he said to do. Ever done that and ended up? Wow, Lord. Did I not hear from you correctly? Wasn't this supposed to be easy? You know, so Jesus, he takes this walk on the water toward the boat. Who does that say? But nothing else, the great I am. He showed his deity. You know, all he had to do was to say the word in the storm or the struggle would have stopped, right? All he had to do was say the word, it would have stopped. But he, Jesus takes this walk because he's not after the difficulty. Who's He after? He's after the men in the boat. That's who He's after. He is working to change everything they think about themselves and about their lives and about who He is. Why did Jesus send him into the storm? He did it for the same reason He sends us storms wind and big waves, because it is only then um, that we are able to see His glory and who He really is when nothing else will work. You see, the disciples were fearful when they saw Him coming. They thought it was a ghost. Then, once they recognized Him, He gets in the boat, they are astonished. And what it all amounts to is, and it tells us in that last verse, their hearts were hard and they still hadn't recognized who he was. They still did not know who Jesus was. I guess our question this morning is when we are in the storms of life, do we know who he is? Do we recognize this? Do we recognize him? Paul Tripp said, Peace for us, peace is not found in the ease of life. The peace is yours even when the storms of life take you beyond your natural abilities. Real peace is only found in the presence and the power of our Lord. And finally a quote quote from John Piper, and I get this out of his book Future Grace, which he specifically talks about in Romans eight twenty eight. If you live inside this massive promise, your life is more stable and solid than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you live inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside of Romans 8.28 is all confusion and anxiety, fear, and uncertainty. Outside this promise of all-encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and alcohol, numbing TV, and dozens of futile diversions. There are slack walls and tin roofs, fragile investment strategies, fleeting insurance coverage, trivial retirement plans. There are cardboard fortifications, deadbolt locks, and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. Outside, there are a thousand substitutes for Romans 8.28. Once you walk through the door of love, Into this massive, unshackled structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There comes into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good, all the pain and all the pleasures you will ever experience, is an incomparable refuge in security and hope and power in your life. When God's people really live by the future grace of Romans 8.28, from measles to the mortuary, they are the freest and strongest and most generous people in the world. I guess our question for us today is where do we stand today? You know, these doors of this massive verse are open. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Amen.